Philippians chapter number 2 tonight. And uh, I'll go ahead and tell you, I was talking to my wife, and uh, this passage of Scripture makes me feel small. I think you'll know what I mean when you get there. This passage of Scripture intimidates me. But by the Lord's help, I want to simply take what the Lord gave me, I want to give it to you. And I hope to be a help to you tonight in that way. Philippians chapter number 2. And let's begin reading in verse number 5. The Word of God says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that you give me the unction from on high that's needed to preach your word this evening. Lord, it's your word, it's your church, it's your people, it's your Holy Spirit. So, Father, we ask you and we commit unto you the orchestration of this service tonight. We ask that you'd move in a mighty way that bring glory to your Son, And we'll be sure to thank you. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I've titled the message tonight, From the Cradle to the Cross to the Crown. You see, as we read these passages in Philippians chapter 2, we have a synopsis of the whole spectrum of what God has done with and through His Son to lost humanity and for His Son's glory. Something you'll find as you read the Bible is that every bit of it's about Jesus Christ. When you read through the book of Genesis, you'll find it's about Jesus Christ. Read through the book of Exodus, it's about Jesus Christ. And Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you go through all the Word of God, and from Genesis to Revelation, uh, He's the first Amen, He's the last Amen. He is the central figure. He is the central piece. He is the preeminent one of every word, of every jot and every tittle of the law. It all points to Jesus Christ. And so this broad spectrum of thought that is presented to us in the entire revelation of Scripture is in a most mysterious way given to us in a summary in the few verses that we've read. And I want to just divide these tonight and give you a few truths that the Lord showed me in these passages. Would you notice first off with me the consideration of Christ? Now, verse number 5 says this, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So in a very peculiar way, this passage of Scripture before us opens a window into the mind of the Son of God. Now, we believe that we have a triune God, do we not? We believe that God is not just a force. Uh, He is not just an ideal, but He is a literal God. Uh, He has a literal mind, a literal will. I understand that the three persons of the Trinity will always and have always been in perfect harmony of will. 
But there's no question that the mind of Christ is unique from the mind of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. Else why would the Scripture denote it specifically as the mind of Christ? And so we're allowed to open the window into the mind of Christ as He sat enthroned with the Father in the ages uh, eternal past in all of the glory that He spoke of in John 17. And we get to see what Jesus Christ thought about God's plan of redemption. Notice first off that we're told of the reality of Christ's deity. What does it say there? It says, who being in the form of God. That word form is very mysterious. It's only found a few places in the New Testament. And it denotes the idea of appearance, the idea of that which can be perceived. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ was perceived and was very God. I would say tonight that we speak of the first, second, and third person of the Trinity but we do so simply as a means of labeling and denoting them. But we believe tonight, if we believe according to the Bible, then we believe tonight in a uh, coexistent, we believe in a co-eternal, uh, we believe in a co-authoritative Godhead. In other words, the Son was just as much God as the Father, and the Spirit just as much God as the Father, and vice versa, in any which way that you can make a combination. Uh, they are uh, coexistent in their majesty, in their authority, in their ability. They all three are God. Are you aware that Jesus Christ has always been God? He didn't become God when He was incarnate. He didn't become God upon the cross of Calvary. He was always God. He didn't become God uh, when God decided to create uh, all of this existence, when the Word entered and birthed the creative act of God into the existence, ripped through that which was timeless and fixed a point of time, ripped through that which was vast uh, and a great expanse and put a place. Uh, God, Christ didn't become God in that moment. He had always been God. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, there's some mysteries tonight. There's some things I'm just going to have to give you without explaining because I can't explain. But I know this fact and I know this truth. The Bible says that in the beginning was the Word. Not in the beginning the Word showed up. In the beginning was the Word. There's three beginnings. We talked about this in our study of 1 John. There's three beginnings spoken of in the Word of God. There's the beginning of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1. And then there's the beginning spoken of in the first chapter of 1 John. And that's the beginning of the day of grace or the beginning of the gospel when it says that which we have seen from the beginning. And then there's another beginning spoken of in John 1.1, 1, 1, and that's the beginning before the beginning. That's the existence before there was an existence. That's the state of God before God was ever manifest to humanity. God always existed. And what was there in the beginning was the Word. Jesus Christ his deity is a reality. It wasn't, it's not that it was reality, it is reality. He's still the very God. He is still just as much God as God the Father. Now, when I say that He's God, I don't mean that He's God and God the Father and the Spirit aren't. Our apostolic brethren believe that He's God but not the Father and not the Holy Spirit, that they are merely modes or manifestations of Jesus Christ. I don't believe that tonight. I believe in a triune God. In three persons, not, not in three manifestations, not in three parts, not in three modes, in three persons. 
And I believe each one of them is just as much God as the one before as the one after. We see the reality of His deity. But notice, secondly, we see the right of His deity. Who being in the form of God, what does it say? Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You know, sometimes we have the idea of this pecking order. But the Bible tells me that it was not robbery. You know what that word robbery means here in our passage. It means that which should not be grasped. That which is not to be attained. That which is not to be reached for. And what the passage is saying here is that there was no limits, there was no restrictions upon the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, Him calling and claiming and proclaiming that He was God was not something that was to be off limits. He had the very right to present Himself as God to humanity. Nothing improper about that. There's some today that would have us picture him, and I touched on this this morning, have us picture him as the meek Galilean, as the shepherd of Nazareth, as the compassionate healer. And I'm thankful he was all those things. But don't think for one moment, just because he was so meek and lowly, that he's not so high and holy, because he still is. He's still God. It's rightful, it's just to recognize him as God. We live in a day of modernistic and watered-down theology that would have us to believe any number of versions of Jesus. They'd have us to believe that Jesus was a good man, that Jesus was some sort of demigod, that Jesus was some sort of part God, part man, that Jesus was just a religious teacher, that he was just the founder of a religious movement. But you know, they have to go everywhere but the Word of God to get those things because the Word of God has only one thing to say about Jesus Christ and that he was the very Son of God and God himself. That's proper to recognize him as that. It's right to recognize Him as God. This ought to teach us something about His majesty tonight. I think sometimes we take Jesus for granted, don't you? I think sometimes when we enter into His presence, and I'm not saying that God expects us to come into His presence uh, swinging an incense pot and chanting things that we can't explain, uh, but there is a reverence, there is a holiness, there is a hallowedness, there is a sacredness with which we ought to enter into the shadow of the Almighty and the throne room of grace. You see, it's right to recognize Him as God tonight. He is God. He has a right to that place. There's nothing wrong with that. We see the reality of His deity, and we see the right of His deity. But I want you to notice a third thought, and this is just going to segue into our second point. We see the robing of His deity. I thought long and hard about the word that I wanted to use for that particular thought. The passage says before us, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation. When I think about the word reputation, I couple a word with it, and it's the word perception. Reputation doesn't have anything to do with how you feel about yourself. The reputation's got to do with how other folks feel about you. If a person's got a bad reputation, it means that other folks think negatively of them. If a person's got a good reputation, it means that other persons, other people think highly of them. What does the Bible say about Jesus Christ? That word found there means to make empty or to make void. And what it means is this, that Christ, in all of His majesty, in all of His magnitude, He chose to conceal and to hide away So many of the very things that make Him God, that He might come into humanity and redeem you and I. Let me just explain it. I think that's the only way I can do it. 
when I think of this passage, I think of divine qualities. If the Bible's telling me in this passage that Jesus Christ is God, that it's right to consider Him God, that it is just to consider Him God, but then it tells me that when He came into this world, He didn't come with the trumpet sound. He didn't come and set up a kingdom by force, but He came that He might reveal God to humanity through His life. I think of the word perception. How was He perceived when He came? Let me give you a few thoughts here. God is eternal, is He not? He's an eternal God. And yet when Christ came into this world, He was born and He ascended. Now that's mysterious to me. That's not something that you would consider God placing upon Himself. And yet the Bible tells us that when He was incarnate into this world, that God chose a point in time for Him to not to be created, but to be incarnated into this world, to be manifest into this world. And there was a constraint of time in which his ministry was accomplished, after which he ascended up into the heavens. We see that he was eternal, and yet he was born, and he ascended. I want to give you a second thing. We see that he was omnipotent, do we not? Is God not omnipotent? Is He not unlimited in His power? Does He not have the ability to do whatsoever He pleases? Would we not say that for God, that He has no man that is His master, no being, no power, no creature that is His master? He is the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. And He's the King of kings. We know this is true. And yet our passage says that He became obedient unto death. He chose of His own volition to put himself through the bearing of our sin under the jurisdiction of death, that he might redeem those, that he might destroy him that had the power over death, the book of Hebrews says, and deliver those who their entire lifetime were subject unto bondage through fear of death. You see, it's not that he was any less God after Bethlehem than he was before Bethlehem. He was 100% God before Bethlehem. And He was 100% God after Bethlehem. The difference is before Bethlehem, He was 100% God. After Bethlehem, He's both 100% God and 100% man. We see that He robed His deity by His perception. When He entered into this world, He didn't enter as men would expect God to enter. But notice, secondly, He did so through His position. When we think of God, we think of God upon a throne. And I think rightfully so, don't you? That's where He belongs. He's God. He's the Lord. He ought to have the government of our life. He belongs upon a throne. And yet the Bible says, look what it says in our passage here before us. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Something very interesting is found here, and I'm going to try not to dive into it, but isn't it interesting that the first two things that are distinguished are things that are of his own volition? Some would say, well, you know, he was God, but then he was incarnated and things changed. No, his incarnation was something he chose of his own free will. The Bible says, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of, of a servant. We see not only by his perception, but by his vocation. What does the Bible say to us in the book of uh, Mark chapter number 10, verse 45? For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. 
That's not how you perceive or expect God to come. That's not how you would imagine the God of all creation behaving and acting. And yet when he came to this world, he took upon him the form of a servant. He girded his towel around his waist and knelt down and washed the feet of his disciples. All the way up and down the dusty roads of Galilee, he would travel. And multitudes, more than... I'm convinced that Scripture does not even record for us a drop in the bucket relative to the miracles that Christ performed. For John said that if the books were written, that the world could not contain them. By the multitudes they came to Him with nothing to offer, with nothing to give Him. Oh, what a picture! You and I came to Him with nothing to offer, with nothing to give, nothing but a need to fill and a soul to redeem. And we came and we said, Lord, Lord, my eyes are blinded, would You open them? Lord, my legs are lame, would You breathe strength into them? God, my tongue is bound up, would you cut it free? And as the Son of God, and the Son of the Man, and the Servant of God, and the Servant of Man, He reached His eternal hands that had formed the heavens, and He touched the blinded eyes, and He loosed the bound tongue, and He gave strength to the broken legs. He called the name of Lazarus, and He came from His tomb. He came as a servant. We see by His perception And we see by his vocation, but I want you to notice a third thing in our passage. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. We see his incarnation spoken of. Let me make a statement that's kind of bold, but I stand behind it 150%. That the incarnation of Jesus Christ is one of the most important doctrines contained within the pages of God's holy, preserved, inspired Word. There's a lot of things that men may mess with and God tolerate. But God will not tolerate men toying with two things. One is the Word of God. One is the written Word. And the second is the living Word and the incarnation. God won't allow those things to be toyed with. Nations and empires have crumbled because of their attacks on the Word of God. Go look through history. Look at the nations that burnt copies of the Word of God, and you'll find that God burnt them like chaff, and they no longer stand. We find the incarnation spoken of, that He was made in the likeness of men. That word likeness invokes the notion of image, does it not? And it reminds me of what God said concerning humanity when He said, let us make man in our image. And in the beautiful paradox and mystery of the Word of God, man is created in the image of God. The first Adam in the image of God. And the second Adam comes in the likeness of man. Took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. You could have touched his body. You could have heard his breath. You could have heard his voice. John described it this way in the first chapter of 1 John, that which we have seen, which our hands have handled, which our eyes have looked upon, of the word of life. That God... And listen, I mean, I think sometimes a lot of the things that infidels bring up as great mysteries... 
are no, no trouble for me. And the things that boggle my mind are rarely mentioned by infidels. And they'll say things. We're watching, me and my wife, a program back of this. Sometimes, you know, TV just makes us all stupider. Amen? It just does. Used to, I wouldn't have even used a fake word like stupider, but I've been watching too much TV. And we were watching a, uh, a thing on, on scientists trying to disprove the miracles of Egypt and the great wonders that God showed. And you got this one fella up there with a leaf blower blowing it across a kiddie pool. And I said, okay, I see how this is going to go. Amen. <clears throat> and they struggle with that. That's no struggle for me. The God that flung creation out of nothing into something, pulled back the veil of darkness, stepped out and revealed himself and said, let there be. No struggle for me that he parted a Red Sea. No struggle for me. They called down hail from heaven. No struggle for me. That he spoke and darkness enveloped the land. That's no trouble for me. I'll tell you the mystery to me. That God could place himself within the likeness of man. And step into our world. That boggles my mind. We see first off the consideration of Christ. But notice secondly. The condescension of Christ. He was incarnated. And what does the Bible say about it? who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Notice what it says. And being found in fashion as a man. And being found in fashion as a man. We see Christ's humanity spoken of. Listen to what the Bible says in Romans 8, 3, and I can't say it any better than Scripture. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice how close God will permit those two words to abide in Scripture his own son and sinful flesh. Now, I don't believe that Jesus Christ had a sin nature, do you? I don't believe that. But I do believe that on Calvary he became sin for us. And so nestled in the ironclad and heaven-settled pages of God's Word for all of eternity, these two phrases are found in juxtaposition. One another, nestled as neighbors, his own son, and sinful flesh. That God would permit his son, and that his son would so willingly choose to take upon himself the weakness, the pain, the suffering that humanity entails, baffles me. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, and let me read a few passages to you. Hebrews chapter number 2, and I want you to look with me at verse number 9. The Bible says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. 
For it became Him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. Let me read that again. For it became Him. You know what that word means, don't you? Many years ago, when men had tact and romance about them, they might have said this to their wife, that dress is very becoming on you. Meaning it's fitting, it's proper, it's adorning, and it's beautifying. The Bible says that it became Him. For whom are all things. They're all for Him. And by whom are all things. They're all by Him. Everything that exists, exists because and by Him. But it became Him in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Perfect through sufferings. That phrase, (laughs) that's a theological phrase. Perfect through sufferings. We know that the word perfect does not denote necessarily the idea of sinlessness. And I don't say that because Christ was not sinless, because He was sinless. I say that because He was always sinless, and He didn't have to become sinless. He was always sinless. So what does it mean when it says perfect? It holds the idea of that which is mature, that which is proper, that which is brought to fruition. And what it is saying is this, to make perfect the captain of their salvation, to make him perfect through sufferings. Not because he was imperfect, but because in his position as captain, there was a certain amount of confidence that had to be vested in him. You see, when we look to Jesus Christ, if he had never suffered, if he had never been tempted if he had never sweat, uh, sweat, sweat drops of blood, if he had never cried a single tear, if he had never been moved with compassion, he would still be able to be our high priest. Don't you believe that the knowledge of God is perfect? And yet the Bible says, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience through the things which he suffered. Now let's explain that. Not that he had to have his spirit broken. Not that he had to be taught. But that he had to appear in such a way that you and I could have confidence in him. Let's read a little further. Look what it says. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to be called, to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee, and again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me, forasmuch then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. You see, he that sanctifieth and they which are sanctified are one. And so as we are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You see, even if the leader doesn't for his own benefit have to go through that valley, if we've got to go through it and he's going to lead us out, he's going to have to go through it ahead of us. Does that make sense to you tonight? It's not necessarily that he needed to learn obedience. He was omniscient. He was in perfect submission to the will of his father. But it's that if we are going to learn obedience, we had to know that He could walk that pathway with us. 
It's not necessarily that he had to be made mature through sufferings, for he was always mature. He's the rock of ages. But it's that if we are to be made perfect through sufferings, we have to have confidence that he can lead us through what we're going through. Notice what our text says. The Bible says in verse number 16, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. We talk about the fellowship of his sufferings. That's the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings is not just merely the idea that we're going to have to suffer and go through some things, but that in the midst of our suffering, we have a high priest that has also suffered. And we can have fellowship with him based upon that mutual suffering. That we can enter into his throne room And though we may be able to look outward at a harsh world and say, you do not know what I'm going through, we cannot look upward into a throne room of grace and say, you do not know what I'm going through. He knows exactly what you're going through. We see Christ's humanity spoken of. We see His humility spoken of. What does it say? It was made in the likeness of men, and He humbled Himself. He humbled Himself. The correlation in which we can humble ourselves is directly related to the position of exaltation that we experienced and enjoyed before our humility. You see, there's only so far you and I can humble ourselves because we're not very high to begin with. He left the ivory palaces. He left a place where it was all about Him. To be born in a manger. You see, he left one crown to go to a cradle, to go to a cross, to go to another crown. He left a place that none of us can even fathom. When human writers saw it, angels said, don't even write about it. You'll never describe it. Left a place that when men entered into the presence of him, that first time that they saw him, Enshrined upon that throne, they were struck and paralyzed with fear and fell on their faces. He said, I'll leave this place. If that's what it takes, I'll leave this place. No man can see God, but I'll robe myself in flesh. I'm already aware of their sufferings, but if they need me to suffer, to help them suffer, I'll suffer. I'll leave a place where I'm revered and respected. I'll leave a place where the sweetest music is comprised of the repetition of my name. I'll go to a place where I'm blasphemed. I'll go unto my own, and my own will receive me not. I, the Prince of Life, will become sin so that I might die the death of the unrighteous. You ever thought about this? If he hadn't become sin, he could have never died. The wages of sin is death. If he hadn't became our sin, he couldn't have died. But he said, they can't be redeemed lest I die for them. Lest someone pay for their sin, so I, the prince of life, 
that person that Hebrews says, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. The fountain of life was nailed to a cross. You see, we see his humanity spoken of in his humility, but we see his mortality spoken of. A mortality unlike any mortality that any of us have ever experienced. Why? Because John 10 uh, and verses 17 and 18, Christ said, No man taketh my life from me. He says, I lay it down of myself. You and I don't know what that's like. Oh, there might be some that are martyrs. You say, what's the difference between the martyr and the Savior? The difference between the martyr and the Savior is for the martyr, death is coming one day sooner or later anyway. The Savior chose to willingly enter into a valley He did not have to go into that He might bring us out with Him. He chose to do it. He was willing to bear death. The Bible says He became obedient unto death. But not just any death, even the death of the cross. A public death. A shameful death. He said, I'll bear that for you. We see Christ's condescension spoken of. We've seen Christ's consideration spoken of. But can I give you one last short thought? We see Christ's coronation spoken of. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him, given Him a name which is above every name. We see Christ's exaltation. No more hanging on the cross. I know the Roman Catholics think he is, but he's not. He's not on the cross anymore. He won't be trodden underfoot. No more kangaroo courts. No more cat and nine tails upon his back. Hebrews 12, when we read it this morning, says this, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's been exalted. He's no longer in this world. Oh, He's returning. But when He returns, He's not returning with His visage marred, as Isaiah 52 says. He's not returning to be spit upon and to be buffeted. That time's done. He's been exalted. He's been exalted. We see not only His exaltation spoken of, but we see His glorification spoken of. It says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him, given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. When will that glorification take place? There's a lot of dispute about this, and I'm not wanting to fuss with you about God's prophetic timetable tonight. But I know that there's only one time that's recorded for us in all of Scripture when those three categories of people will be in one place at one time. Things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth. What does it mean when it says things under the earth? The Bible says that hell from beneath hath enlarged herself. The lake of fire is not hell. Hell is not the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the place into which hell will be cast. I believe that hell is at the heart of this earth. We can fight about it if you wish. I don't think we'll get anywhere. Oh, and I don't believe that because they drilled 
speakers and microphones down into there in the 70s either. I believe that because the Bible says hell from beneath, beneath the earth. Only one place that's beneath the earth, and that's the center of the earth. Go and ask the Chinaman where beneath the earth is. He'll point in the opposite direction you'll point. Hell from beneath hath enlarged herself. So that's speaking of those that have died without Christ. What about things that are in the earth? Well, there are things in the earth right now. There will continue to be things in the earth. There will be things in the earth throughout the millennial reign. What about things in heaven? Let me give you a passage of Scripture, and it's the only time in Scripture I know of all of these things being gathered into one place. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter number 20. Most of you know exactly where I'm going before we've even arrived. But there's some very interesting language that's spoken of rarely, I find, in Revelation chapter number 20. Now, I, I want to show you something, if I can. If you're right there at chapter 20, then probably you can see chapter 19, verse number 19, spoken of. For the Bible says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Now, as you go through these passages of Scripture, that's the last time before the millennial reign you'll find this word earth used. When you look in chapter number 20, you'll find the word earth used again in verse number 9. For the Bible says, and they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city. That's speaking of Jerusalem. And then we find this word earth again in verse number 11. For the Bible says, and I saw a great white throne, him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. That's the last time in Scripture that the old earth and the old heaven is mentioned. For in verse number 21, John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. You see, we find at the scene set before us the great white throne judgment. And the Bible, I believe, is using very literal terminology when it says, From whose face heaven and earth fled away. I don't believe that's merely a poetic allegory for the might and majesty of God. I think this is the time that Peter spoken of when, when he said that the elements shall melt with fervent heat. So if the earth is gone, if the old heaven, which is speaking of the firmament and the celestial space, if that's gone, then there's only one place left, and it's at this great white throne. You say, preacher, why do you say all that? I say all that because we live in a world that refuses to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. But the Bible teaches me there's coming a day when every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. At this great white throne judgment, every knee will bow. The infidel that blasphemes God, his knee will bow. The academic that claims through his logic to have proved to us when he's really proved it to no one but himself that God doesn't exist, his knee will bow. 
the politician that has taken the Lord's name in vain, called himself a Christian, when he's not a Christian, his knee will bow. And by the way, Christians will be here, not being judged, but they'll be present. So how do you know that? There's no other place for him to be. Heaven and earth has fled away. This is the only place for them to be. I believe our knees will bow as well. This is Christ's glorification when he is seen as the king. Notice finally one last little thought. We see Christ's vindication. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Right now, men do not confess him as Lord. Even a lot of Christians won't do it. But there's coming a day when every tongue will confess Him Lord. Not because that's what they've made Him, but because that's who He is. Not, not because we've converted the whole world, as the Roman Catholics would have us to believe, but because He is Lord. Not because men have finally dawned, uh, this new age has dawned of utopian religion and one world ecumenicalism. Sounds to me like a one-world religion. Don't, isn't that what that sounds like to you? Not because that has finally rung in and reigned in, but because the authoritative throne of Jesus Christ has crushed underfoot His enemies. They've been made His footstool. He has reigned with a rod of iron, destroyed those that are the enemies of His cross and His crown, and has asserted His authority. And on that day, every tongue will confess Things in heaven, things in the earth, things under the earth, everyone will confess Him as He truly is. That's His day of vindication. That's the day when everything is made right. That's the day when the blasphemers are put underfoot and cast into a lake of fire. You say, preacher, how awful that you'd look forward to that day. Oh, you better believe I look forward to that day. Not because I hate anyone but because my Lord Jesus Christ deserves that kind of glory. That's who He is. It's what He deserves. And there's coming a day when He'll receive that kind of glory.